Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to a new normal. Whether accessing our free services in person, at one of our 175 locations, online, or over our toll-free helpline, you're getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. Well, today's episode is part of our special series, Spotlight on Coronavirus. All of us at the Cancer Support Community are committed to getting you the information that you tell us you need uh, as together we face the impact of the spread of the coronavirus. Uh, In the last week, our Research and Training Institute launched a survey asking cancer patients and their caregivers to identify their concerns, and we'll be addressing them today with two wonderful doctors uh, in our episode. I just want to mention, as usual, uh, this information today is not meant as medical advice, and it is not meant to replace information or guidance from your own uh, physician and medical team. Uh, Before we get started, I want to share a quote from American physicist uh, Richard Feynman. I think it frames our conversation today really well because there's still so much we don't know and are learning about the the coronavirus, COVID-19. He said, quote, I think that when we know that we actually do live in uncertainty, then we ought to admit it. It is of great value to realize that we do not know the answers to different questions. This attitude of mind, this attitude of uncertainty is vital to the scientist. We're fortunate to have with us today two truly knowledgeable doctors who are going to share their insights with us as together we navigate these challenging times. Returning to the show is Dr. Mary Jennifer Markham, and joining us for the first time is Dr. William Dayhut. Dr. Dayhut is the Scientific Director for Clinical Research at the National Cancer Institute Center for Cancer Research. In this role, Dr. Dayhut oversees and assures the quality of medical care delivered to patients participating in CCR clinical trials. Dr. Dayhut is also the Section Chief of the Clinical Translational Prostate Cancer Research Program, which emphasizes new approaches to the treatment, diagnosis, and prognostic evaluation of prostate cancer with the goal to increase the precision in which therapeutic decisions are made for patients with primary and metastatic prostate cancer. In this research, his mission is to improve therapy for men with advanced prostate cancer. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dehat. Thank you very much. Really an honor to be on. Dr. Mary Jennifer Markham is Associate Professor and Interim Chief of the Division of Hematology and Oncology at the University of Florida. She is Associate Director for Medical Affairs for the University of Florida Health Health Cancer Center, and she is a medical oncologist specializing in gynecologic cancers. She is Chair of the ASCO Cancer Communications Committee and is the Social Media Editor for the Journal of Clinical Oncology and the Journal of the National Cancer Institute. It's great to have you back, Dr. Markham. Thanks so much for having me back, Kim. It's a pleasure. 
I'm going to start with you, Dr. Markham. Um, although many of our listeners <laughs> uh, may have heard this a few times already, I always like to level set, and I think it's worth taking a step back and reviewing what coronavirus is, its relationship to COVID-19, and why it, it has set off this you know, real worldwide concern, especially as most states have now issued stay-at-home orders. So let's start with the basics. Sure. So uh, coronavirus, the one that we are talking about, is um, uh, the virus that causes the disease, COVID-19. And this is a, a novel coronavirus that was discovered in China in December of 2019. Coronaviruses are a family of viruses, and some of the um, more common ones cause things like the common cold. They cause respiratory illnesses. Uh, this coronavirus, though, is causing a more, um, what seems to be perhaps a more severe respiratory illness that is uh, very transmissible. And this is uh, why many of our states and uh, counties across the country, and, and actually countries, period, are plural, um, have issued shelter-in-place orders. Got it. Got it. Um, Dr. Markham, we've seen images of people lining up to be tested at hospitals. Some are being tested at home, I hear, even being tested at drive-thrus. If someone does get tested, what should they expect to experience? So the test itself probably doesn't take very long compared to the amount of time people may wait to actually get tested. Um, The test probably takes about five minutes. It usually involves um, using a a swab that may look similar to a Q-tip that is inserted into the nose. So it's a nasal swab. It can also be done um, by a healthcare professional um, in the back of the throat. And for people who unfortunately may be in the hospital and have um, uh, be on a ventilator, which is a a breathing machine, uh, sometimes we are actually getting lung secretions to do the test on. But for an average person in the community who thinks they may have symptoms and whose doctor advises them to get tested, it should be a very quick procedure. I haven't had it myself. I am told that it's not the most pleasant thing if you imagine a Q-tip going into the back of your nose, uh, but unfortunately, the secretions in the back and a good sample is actually what's necessary in order to get a good test. I see. I see. And what about these new blood tests that we're, that we're hearing about? What are those? So I think that's probably referring to the antibody testing Um, Mm -hmm. When your body is infected with anything, with a bacteria or a virus, your body creates antibodies. That's your immune system's response to the infection. And so what we um, believe happens in this virus is that people who have been exposed or have been infected or are currently infected may have detectable antibodies to the virus in their blood. There's not currently an approved test for this, but um, I think they are coming and um, we're trying to figure out, we as a medical community, how best to implement these. Um, but right now, I think in most communities, uh, the nasal swab is really the, the primary test that's being done. Got it. Got it. Um, Dr. Deha, we in our last show, we, we sort of talked about, you know, cancer patients. If they're concerned that they have the coronavirus, if they're an active treatment for cancer, really they should be calling their oncologist to, to talk about their concerns. A, would you um, agree with that? And what if we're talking about somebody who's maybe quite a bit out from their treatment? Who should be their first phone call? We're trying to give our listeners some advice on that. And Kim, Kim, those are really important questions. And I think what's really struck me 
is that there's never been a time in oncology when the care needs to be as personalized as it is right now. Now, we've talked a lot about precision medicine and other aspects of treating cancer patients, but at this time, really, you need a caregiver who understands your disease and understands your treatment and actually understands your family situation in a way that's, that's critically important. I think my general advice for this question is, is that a patient should call whoever they usually would call if they're going to be sick. So if a patient is under active treatment and most of their communications are with their oncologist and they think they may have coronavirus, call your oncologist. But generally, if you're now, you know, years out from your treatment, if you're one of my prostate patients who are now six, eight, ten years out and you have symptoms and most interactions with your primary care doctor, call your primary care doctor first because he or she is probably the one who knows you best. Good, good. That's, that's, uh, that's good advice. Um, Dr. Dayhat, I, I also want to hear your thoughts about a question that's coming up a lot. Most patients and survivors we've spoken to are really being very cautious uh, about how they navigate through the world, taking all of this advice very, very seriously. Um, but folks want to know, are there particular groups of cancer patients who should be extra cautious? We hear this term, immunocompromised. Are there particular groups of patients, cancer patients, that are especially immunocompromised, maybe stem cell transplant patients or those who are on, on active chemotherapy? What can you tell us about that? So, again, another great question, Kim. I, I think when we think, again, of a cancer patient, when we, it's very important, firstly, to personalize them. And first, think about how they fit into the general population. So if you're a cancer patient who already put, is already at higher risk for having complications from coronavirus, if you're elderly, probably if you're male, if you're someone who has diabetes, heart disease, or you have hypertension, then I think you have to have extra caution. We do know from statistics available that cancer patients are more likely to contact coronavirus and are more likely to have serious complications from it. Most of the data we see have not really broken down by individual cancer patients and how they're treated, but it does make sense to us that if you're a patient who's on a treatment that's fairly intensive, bone marrow transplant, leukemia, high-dose chemotherapy, I think you should be extra cautious. Or if you have a cancer that puts you at higher risk something like multiple myeloma or leukemias or other diseases which we know impacts your ability to fight infections. You then, again, need to be, be aware that you're in a higher risk group. Some other things that you might not be aware, a lot of cancer treatments have high-dose steroids, high-dose prednisone, and those can actually block your T-cells, which are the cells which often can fight infections. So those patients need to be cautious. Now, not all chemotherapies are the same. There are some chemotherapies like the drug called cytoxan or the drug called fludarabine, which we know makes patients particularly immunosuppressive. But there are others, such as the drug called docetaxel, which while it would put you at somewhat higher risk, is not nearly as immunosuppressive. So really, it's really important to talk to your doctor about um, your treatment and, if, and maybe even talk to your doctor, are there other chemotherapy agents which you could switch for yours, which would put you at, at lower risk? That's great advice, and uh, I know that uh, we talk a lot in, in, in cancer care about shared decision-making and that patient-physician communication. Dr. Dayhead, it sounds like now it's more important than ever to engage in that kind of communication. Totally great. Yeah, yeah. Um, a practical question, Dr. Dayhead, that we're getting from 
from patients, maybe, again, patients who are in treatment. It's about going out and getting necessities like groceries at the market or medications um, at the pharmacies. We've had some folks call in and say, um, I do have a caregiver in the home. He or she can go out and get those things for me. What do I need to do when those things are brought back into the home? Or I'm, I'm alone. You know, I don't have a caregiver. I don't have somebody to get these things. I do have to venture out. So what, what precautions should I be taking? Well, I think it's really important to follow the CDC guidelines, and particularly when one reflects on one's own particular risks. I think, in general, one should only go out if it's absolutely essential, and I think that's particularly important if it's a cancer patient. If there's someone else who can go out to the grocery store or pick up medications for you or pick up your scans from somewhere, please, if at all possible, do that. We know that's not always possible. Sometimes folks are in a situation where there's not someone who can help them out. So use precautions. You know, see if you can do delivery. I mean, a lot of pharmacies are doing that now. Grocery stores are doing that. Um, Mm -hmm. Make sure when you go out, if consider wearing a mask because there may be some protection available. Wash your hands carefully and use social distancing at all times. But use your common sense with this. I mean, it's really important that if you're a cancer patient, you do everything possible to try to avoid an infection. Great, great, Um, Dr. Markham. There have been several news stories in which. Patients have spoken about not starting treatment for their cancer, delaying treatment, postponing surgeries. Um, uh, some are having their treatment stopped or delayed mid-course. Um, I want to dive into this a little bit because there are a lot of scenarios that could happen, and these things are causing tremendous um, anxiety for patients. We're getting a lot of phone calls on this uh, on this subject lately. So, Dr. Markham, what should patients consider as they think about starting or stopping treatment um, for their cancer during this time or having a surgery uh, uh, delayed? You know, how does a patient frame this and really manage that anxiety? So I, I do think it's really important for your listeners to know that they don't have to make these decisions themselves, and they really shouldn't. They uh, should be having these conversations with the, the surgeon or with the oncologist or radiation oncologist who's recommending treatment, because there is no one right answer, and that's the tricky piece. Uh, Dr. Dayhat talked about personalized medicine, and this really is another example of how the decision-making is going to be quite personalized depending on that individual patient scenario. So, for example, some patients may have maybe living with cancer. Maybe it's a metastatic cancer and they're on treatments and on breaks and, and those alternate. Well, maybe it's safe for that individual patient to postpone treatment for a couple of months based on the pace of their their cancer or maybe because their cancer is currently stable. Um, for someone else, though, maybe it's actually more important to treat the cancer despite the coronavirus. And I think that is only something that can be decided between the oncologist and the, the patient. Surgery, that, I'm glad you brought that up. There are um, There's been a lot in the media about hospitals and, and uh, surgeons um, delaying or canceling elective surgeries. So in general, cancer surgeries are not really considered elective. Some things may be uh, in the sense that they are not urgent or emergent and must be done in the next week. But again, that, that really will require some conversation with a surgeon. And I'll just give you an example. Uh, we have um, uh, at my institution a breast cancer surgeon and a breast cancer team that includes oncology and, and radiation oncology. And for some women, they are opting to change the sequence 
of treatment. So maybe surgery gets delayed a little bit, but they start with some medical therapy first. So there are ways to work around it for the patient so that the individual patient is not placed in excess uh, risk of harm, either due to the cancer treatment or due to the coronavirus. Got it. Got it. Um, so let's say, Dr. Markham, a patient is to go ahead with their chemo, is to go ahead um, with their surgery. They're concerned, as you can imagine, about whether it's safe or not to go to the hospital and to the treatment facility. Generally speaking, what steps are being taken to keep patients uh, safe when they are going in for their care? So that it is a valid concern, and I think we all do need to think twice about uh, whether we need to keep an appointment or whether it can be postponed or delayed. And so that is actually what a lot of cancer centers and cancer uh, treatment uh, facilities are doing right now, is they are reviewing patient lists and trying to figure out if this is somebody who, who maybe can have a delayed visit or maybe a visit by telemedicine. And some people can. If there are patients who are perhaps on oral medications that don't need to come in for an intravenous and IV infusion of treatment, uh, those folks may be actually able to do a visit by telemedicine, which is essentially by phone call or by uh, FaceTime or Zoom uh, type meeting with their doctor. Now, some people obviously do need to come into the, into the doctor's office or to the infusion center or the radiation oncology suite. And so what many places have done, um, I would probably say most, has instituted a couple of things. Uh, one is a visitor policy. Uh, many places now are restricting visitors to perhaps one person and some even maybe no additional visitors. This helps the healthcare facility maintain a distance between patients and between uh, staff and visitors. So we know that the, the six feet um, rule for physical distancing is important to maintain. It's very hard to maintain if you've got a crowded waiting room with, with visitors. It's easier if you can limit the visitors and it keeps everybody safer. And then screening. So a lot of patients and visitors are being screened at the front door of the hospital or the clinic for symptoms of COVID or for a history of exposure. And if that's happening, then those folks are actually being recommended to have treatment or to be tested for COVID. Um, and it's a way to keep everybody safe um, within the building and to keep that particular person safe. And of course, simple things like um, very good cleaning, uh, disinfecting within the hospital and within the infusion center, um, using proper personal protective equipment or PPE, which really refers to masks and gowns. And um, I think those are all important things that are being done to keep people safe. If you're just joining us, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. This is part of our series Spotlight on Coronavirus. We're having a really great Q&A with Dr. Bill Dayhut. He's the Scientific Director for Clinical Research at the National Cancer Institute Center for Cancer Research, and Dr. Mary Mary Jennifer Markham. She's Associate Professor and Interim Chief of the Division of Hematology and Oncology at the University of Florida. Um, Dr. Dayhut, I was uh, asked a good question uh, by someone recently. I know that, that different cancer patients are treated in different settings. Many of them are treated in a community uh, hospital or a community cancer center. Many are treated in some of the larger academic uh, uh, academic cancer centers. What difference does that make in this current coronavirus situation, if any? 
So, Kim, I think the most important things for the patient is that you need three things. You need somebody who knows the patient, knows the patient's pace of disease, knows the patient's other underlying medical conditions, and probably knows the patient's social situation. Then you know somebody who truly understands the disease itself in a way that they can make those tough decisions um, that Dr. Markham talked about, about, you know, who should potentially hold treatment, who can maybe even skip a dose. And finally, particularly now, you need somebody that can be easily reached when there's a question or concern in, in a COVID-19 situation. So, you know, I don't think care is nearly as, as siloed as it might have been. And at least we have, you know, very skilled um, physicians in, in every, every clinical setting. So, and oftentimes we'll see team approaches where patients may be on a clinical trial, you know, in a, in a large city and an academic center, but get some of the care at home. So as long as your team can really provide you expertise on the disease, an understanding of the patient, and an ability to reach somebody rapidly in an emergency, then I think you can be successful. Terrific. Terrific. Dr. Deha, let's keep going. Um, I know that even under normal circumstances, a cancer patient might go to the emergency room because of a symptom or a complication, a fever, other things happening uh, that may be related to their treatment. Certainly with news reports indicating that some emergency rooms are overwhelmed, are at capacity, how should a patient proceed if they have some symptoms or complications or side effects that are really concerning to them? Kim, again, a great question. You know, sadly, um, due to their illness or due to the treatment, many cancer patients will uh, suffer complications, some which are very serious. Most cancer centers have guidelines about when one should go to emergency room, either on their webpage or maybe oftentimes even printed that's given out by the treatment nurses. You know, I think under this particular situation, I think what makes sense for patients is when they're seeing their nurses or seeing their physicians to really start going through those questions again before they need to go to the emergency room. There are certain things that we know it's very important that a cancer patient is in the hospital within an hour. We know if somebody has a very low white blood cell count and develops a high fever, antibiotics within an hour are crucial. So, of course, you need to go someplace where you get antibiotics. But, but sometimes there's some judgment in these. So sit down with your treatment nurse, your physician, your uh, nurse practitioner, business assistant, and sort of go through the guidelines. You know, if I have this, who should I do? Should I go to the emergency room or call somebody? And I think that that's, that's really the way you'll be best prepared. Good, good. And so I would say that so part of what you're saying is, you know, perhaps also if you are, folks who are listening, if you're in active treatment and you are connecting on different things with your, uh, with your, health, with your oncology team, maybe have some of those questions on the ready. Even if you're feeling fine, uh, maybe have that little bit of that, uh, that contingency plan in place. Hey, doc, hey, nurse, if this happens, what, what do you recommend I do? If that happens, what do you recommend I do? Maybe it's a good time if you're chatting with your doctor about care to, um, would you agree, Dr. Dayhut, to maybe no, uh, I, I jump think on those things in advance? Because because then you'll be talking to somebody who really knows you. Oftentimes, if you call somebody after hours, you'll get somebody who you know, yes. may be covering for the practice or maybe you know, a, a house staff member. So I think if you sort of, you know, as best work out that game plan with someone who knows you and your cancer the best, I think that puts you in, in the safest hands. Good, good. Um, Dr. Markham, we know that sometimes 
uh, patients have to travel long distances to get their treatment. They may, may be going to a specialized facility. They may not have the care in their area. Um, if the decision is to proceed with treatment, the patient needs to go um, on that journey for their care. What precautions should the patient take on that journey? How do they prepare um, for that? And, and, and what also does the caregiver accompanying them need to know? Sure, and we know there's a lot of areas in the country that are rural, and and sometimes people do have to travel a distance to get to their oncologist or their cancer care team. Um, I I think that what I would, number one, say is um, people shouldn't panic if they do have to travel to see their doctor and have treatment. Um, Common sense really goes a long way here, and just being really concerned about your own personal protection. So uh, I think my personal advice would be, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to wash your hands in the car. Uh, So be sure to pack some hand sanitizer to take with you. If you happen to have gloves, that's perfectly acceptable. Um, I'm a big fan of using uh, paper towels or tissues to open a door handle and then throwing that right in the trash. Uh, So maybe come prepared with a box of tissues. Um, I think minimizing contact with um, more people than you really need to be around is important. So if you can perhaps um, pack your own food, pack your own lunch if you know you're going to be away during a mealtime. Um, that's a great way to um, not risk any exposure to unnecessary people. I think many restaurants are doing drive through and things like that uh, still. Um, but I think if you are a patient who has cancer and you're going through cancer treatment, minimizing exposure is, is important, uh, especially if there are ways to do it. Um, I think it is worth probably checking with the cancer care team on options for remaining closer to home. Um, I know that some cancer centers are really great at working with local um, oncologists or local cancer treatment centers, and maybe part of the treatment can be transitioned to a local oncologist to save some driving time and save some travel time. Um, I do think, though, number one is, is, you know, don't panic. If you need it for your treatment and your doctor has said, yes, we really need to get you here for this treatment, they will take care of you. Good, good, good advice. Um, Dr. Dehad, I want to stay on the subject of caregivers for a moment. Many caregivers have reached out to us um, concerned as a caregiver. What do I do to help keep my patient stay, you know, safe, but my loved one safe at home? Um, I am the one as the caregiver going out to the pharmacy, going out to the supermarket and, and, you know, keeping the trains moving, you know, so to speak. So what can we tell our caregivers to give them some assurance that we recognize that they still have to fulfill these tasks, but maybe they could take some extra precautions? Yeah, but another great question, Kim, and I, and I think it actually, it's a lot of the same advice that Dr. Markham just gave when we talk about patients traveling to visit. So it's, it's very important for the patient to remain healthy, and in the same way, it's very important, if possible, for the caregiver to remain healthy. So, so the general guidelines, you know, limiting exposure, you get medications delivered, it makes sense. And also, it's really important, I think, at this point, for the caregiver to be perhaps the advocate for the patient in conversations with, with the team. Again, some of the points that Dr. Markham brought up and some things that we're actually we're doing at some of our trials is, you know, can some of the care be given closer to home? Can, do I actually need blood drawn every single week or can I, can I spread that out? Um, how often do I need to do my restaging scan? So 
sometimes, you know, the patient is, is, is reluctant to ask those questions because of sort of the delicate relationship between the patient and provider. But this is an opportunity for the um, caregiver to really be an advocate for the patient in this, in this during the COVID-19. Obviously, the things we've talked about earlier, you know, limiting contact, um, you know, hand washing, you know, mask if you're in a public place. I, I do like the great suggestion about having paper towels or tissues available to open and close doors quickly. So, you know, I think it's important that sort of common sense things are being done. But again, being an advocate in any conversation, we don't want to compromise cancer care, but we certainly want to do whatever we can be done to minimize the risk uh, to the patient, period. Yeah. Good good advice, Dr. Dehat. I So let's talk about those masks for a minute. We know now there's a recommendation that we should be wearing some kind of homemade masks uh, if we're, you know, out and about on errands. Um, we've seen all sorts of masks. <laughs> I've seen, uh, we've seen someone using a ski mask, uh, someone wearing a motorcycle helmet. Um, my friend's mother went to the store the other day uh, that she lives in Florida and she went with her snorkeling goggles um, <laughs> to the market the other day. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, which I said, Lorelai, I wish I had a picture of that one. That would be uh, she had on on, on a, a a mask and goggles and her gloves at the uh, at the store. Um, but uh, what's the difference, Doctor Day, have between the masks you might wear when you know painting, working on home carpentry, and then these N95 masks that are mentioned um, in the reports? And and what do you recommend to the average person about these these masks? So, you know, so, so we're all talking about masks, so I think that's, that's, this is a great question. And I think it's very different if you're wearing a mask as a, as a healthcare provider. And as you mentioned, there really are, are two masks that are, there tend to be worn inside the clinics or the hospitals. Now, there's a really significant difference between the uh, surgical mask and the N95. And actually, probably most, actually many physicians really had never worn an N95 or often not even seen an N95. So much less the lay population. A couple of basic things. The surgical masks are approved by the FDA, while the requirements for the N95 are actually approved by a different, a, a higher level approval process. And, and the surgical masks are really, they're, they're fluid resistant. They provide the wearer some protection against really large droplets or splashes. And also protects the patient, if, if a healthcare is wearing it, from, from respiratory coming from the physician to the patient. But while the N95 uh, also reduces exposure to particles and, and certainly large droplets, as well as a large percentage of aerosolized. So a lot of air is actually blocked by the N95s. Well, really, the surgical masks don't really uh, protect from, from uh, aerosolized particles going back and forth. The N95s are tightly fit. They have a really tight seal. Maybe not as tight as, as your friend's goggles, but, but a very tight seal. <laughs> um, but um, the surgical masks will have leakage around them. Uh, both of them were designed to be disposable. Um, at least, you know, certainly the surgical mask was being disposed. And while the uh, N95 was what should have been discarded after it was being used. So there are some similarities. But if you really think about it, one is a really tight mask. That, that really almost more like you think like if you're doing uh, scuba diving, well, the other is, is much more a way to really protect, you know, fluids going back and forth. Now, the lay population in the public walking around, I think the idea is that we do think that higher amounts of viral load, how higher amounts of virus getting into a person or patient may make someone more ill. So by any sort of blockage, 
that may protect patients from either not getting sick or not getting as sick at all. And so I think we're in a situation where we're obviously in a very critical time. You know, we're looking for any little benefit, and that's why the idea that wearing masks may provide some some benefit from people walking around. But they're certainly not the mask that one would use if you were in a healthcare situation. Sure, sure. And, and Dr. Dehat, I know that um, the CDC is now saying, you know, to, to, uh, to wear these masks, you know, homemade masks when you're out about to try to slow, uh, slow down the, the spread. And many states, most states, now have these stay-at-home orders um, in place. What, what is your feeling or what are you seeing as a, as a doctor and a scientist about the results in terms of these stay-at-home uh, orders? I know there's obviously mixed compliance, but do we have a sense? Are these orders starting to, um, starting to work? Is it important that we continue strictly with these orders uh, for now? Tell us what you're seeing in that sort of public health uh, conversation. So, you know, I- I'm not a public health expert. So I think that's important yes. that we, I would defer to someone like, like, like Dr. Fauci, who we're obviously very proud of. But sure, from, sure. A certain, from, from, from a scientific perspective, if you have a virus that can be spread only by person-to-person contact or, by, or likely by a person leaving a, a mark somewhere, uh, you know, the virus somewhere, if you can stop that spread, um, you know, it has to decrease the ability of the virus to uh, disseminate to the population and, and cause, cause illness and, and death. So um, we, we know there's a lag period. We know a couple things. We know there's more testing being done now. So we're, we're already going to find more patients who have uh, been infected. And we know it takes a period of time, sometime between 3 to 14, 12, 13 days for someone to get symptoms. And then if someone gets very ill, uh, you know, it can be weeks after that while they're being treated. So if we start look, trying to look at the number of diagnoses and the number of patient, patients who are dying from the disease and try to make the determination today about the um, efficacy of social distancing, it's actually still too early and still impossible. But I certainly think, you know, looking at experiences in other countries, it seems when that's been put into place, it has had an impact. And so I think it's, it, right now it's certainly the simplest thing we can do, um, and it's probably the most effective. Got it. Got it. Uh, Dr. Dehud, and I appreciate you mentioning Dr. Fauci. I think that we all have great um, and high regard and gratitude for, for Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, all of those public servants who are working around the clock to, um, uh, to confront this pandemic. I, I come from the, uh, the world of HIV and AIDS in the 90s, so I know oh, Dr. Yeah. Fauci's work. Um, Quite well, quite well, and, and uh, you know, we, again, are so, uh, I think, so lucky to have such great public servants who are leading our charge here. Um, uh, Dr. Markham, you know, we know, like some cancers, there's currently no cure uh, for COVID-19. How are patients being treated? You know, are, are ventilators, uh, I know there's a lot of talk about ventilators, are they an important form of treatment um, uh, for this? What other uh, treatments do we see that are either experimental or being studied right now? Sure. So I think one of the really exciting things that I've seen um, since we've been dealing with COVID is uh, the collaboration that's happening between scientists and researchers really globally because we do want a cure and we want um, more than a cure. We want a vaccine. We want to be able to prevent it. And the scientific community has really come together 
uh, on this particular issue uh, quickly. And it's been, it's actually been one of the very encouraging things that I've, I've seen, and it does give me hope. So there are things that are, are, are being done for patients who have COVID, and I think what I'll start by is saying that actually not everybody needs active treatment for it. So many people actually may have the, the virus and have mild symptoms, and um, I think that's what we would hope to have if we were to develop the virus is, is just mild symptoms. So uh, cough, um, maybe some mild shortness of breath, fever, uh, nausea, diarrhea, those kinds of things can happen. Um, there's some evidence also that um, some people may actually lose sense of smell or taste, uh, and that could be a, a symptom. But for people who need to be uh, treated more aggressively, so for people who have more severe disease, um, meaning uh, more um, more shortness of breath such that they really can't um, go without oxygen. I think having hospitalization capacity, being able to be in the hospital for treatment is really important. And this is where the roles of ventilators come in. So someone with a really severe form of COVID-19 may develop something like a pneumonia from it, and their lungs just may not work well enough to be able to breathe for patient. And so it's very important to have the ability to use a ventilator to help breathe for that patient while they recover from the virus. There are things that are being looked at in, in clinical trials and research studies. Um, one of them is um, using plasma from people who have uh, recovered from a coronavirus infection. That plasma may have antibodies that can help fight the infection. And so these are it's currently being studied as a potential treatment. There are some, some drugs that are being investigated as well. Um, actually, there's a variety of clinical trials out there. Um, I, you know, we talked about clinical trials in cancer quite a bit. Cancer clinical trials yes. are crucial. It's the only way we make progress towards finding a cure for cancer. The same thing holds true right now for COVID-19. So if, uh, if one of your listeners happens to become ill or knows someone who becomes ill, the opportunity to participate in a clinical trial is really what's going to move us closer to a treatment, a cure, and ultimately a vaccine. Excellent um, advice and a good plug for participating in clinical trials, and we are big uh, supporters uh, of that, Dr. Markham, so I um, I appreciate that. Um, Let's stick with this clinical research piece, Dr. Dehat, for a minute. Um, You know, Dr. Markham mentioned that, uh, you know, we're we're looking at testing certain existing um, medications in trials that we're starting to see some companies green-lighted to begin um, trials. Dr. Deha, can you talk? And and we're also hearing about the possibility of trials going at sort of record speed. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about, Dr. Deha, about how clinical trials and the circumstances are... um, the same or different from the normal process? Are we going to see things, um, you know, accelerated? And and, uh, I'm just curious what you're seeing on the clinical research side here. Sure. Uh, Let me talk about a couple things along that that aspect. First of all, I think it's important to know that for patients that are currently on cancer clinical trials, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, there's really been increased flexibility um, looking at the IRB and the sponsors, allowing patients oftentimes to get treatments closer to home and sometimes to modify their treatments. Again, you'll need to work through with your IRB and the sponsors of the treatment, as well as obviously your local your treatment centers, 
But I think there has really been an understanding that what needs to be done is to maximize the benefit for the patients um, and protect their safety. And really, um, what we're seeing is a lot of tests that were often done on clinical trials that were much more for long-term benefit, but would put some short-term risk for patients if they had to come in for blood draws, for example, we're actually deferring at this point. And everything, every action we're doing now is looked at a short-term risk-benefit for the patient. So I think folks on clinical trials, if possible, try to stay on the trials, but there may be modifications. Now, as far as you're exactly right, as far as getting new drugs into patients, um, IRBs, um, uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, academic centers, and others are really are working at breakneck speeds to get drugs and treatments into patients as quickly as they can. You know, I'm, I'm aware of, of a couple of potential new uh, therapeutic trials that actually agents that may be coming from the cancer background that where trials are being written under team efforts, they're being reviewed by the IRB, you know, immediately, and, and communications with the sponsors are being done um, very rapidly. So I think your listeners should know that everything is being possible, everything is possible to sort of break through any bureaucratic barriers to get potentially uh, life-threatening, life-improving treatments into patients. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's good to hear, and I certainly um, hope that our ability to, to do this and to collaborate and to um, accelerate the speed of some of this research will be a benefit to us down the line, you know, in oncology as we look at trials and other collaborations into the future. Maybe we're creating some models here that will have some application, um, you know, well into the future. Um, Dr. Dayhead, this is uh, another question we're getting. Um, you know, people are in, it, it, you know, there's so much out of people's control right now, and it's contributing to a lot of um, fear, a lot of anxiety, and we know that even, for example, when folks are diagnosed with cancer, they're looking for some ways to take back some control, and what are some of the things that they can be doing? Aside from the protocols that we've mentioned from the CDC, are there other things that people can be doing to support uh, a healthy immune system? Um, You know, are we looking at, you know, making sure you have a good balanced diet, keeping those, you know, those... um, Processed carbs and and uh, and and meat and, and sugar out of the diet. Are we looking at getting a good night's rest every night? What are some of the things that folks can do to have some control and maybe invest a little bit in the boosting of the immune system? So I, I think this is something that you know we get asked all the time. I think it's very important, you know, for cancer patients to have control over what they can control, you know, to 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 fight their cancer. You know, I, I wish there was a, you know, a magic bullet in order that one could take a simple pill and, and that would simply protect one and improve their ability to uh, have their immune system function. But again, this becomes, a, you know, a personalized decision, a personalized um, roadmap if possible. So if, if, you, if patients have an underlying medical problem, this is the time when possible to control it as much as one can so they're as healthy as possible. So if you're a cancer patient who has uh, diabetes or high blood pressure um, or, or if you're a smoker, I mean, these are the times to, you know, to stop the smoking, to, to work to get your diabetes under control, to do what's best to, to have the strongest possible cardiac function because you need to be in the best possible shape that you can be on every aspect, not, not simply your cancer if you were to fight this infection. Um, you know, the immune system is, is a very 
complicated thing. And, you know, some aspects of the, um, the side effects from, these, from this infection, in fact, the patients who have gotten particularly ill, appears to be actually a very active immune response. And so we're always trying to balance at what point do you need a stronger immune response and what time, as we do in, you know, in some cancer patients, we actually want to suppress the immune response. So you know, as we learn more about how best to treat patients with the COVID-19 infection, I think we'll have better guidance. At this point, I think doing what can keep you overall as healthy as possible, you know, good night's sleep, you know, taking a good walk, and, and managing your other medical problems puts you in, in the best possible position. Terrific. Well, we are um, getting towards the end of our show. Uh, so, you know, I'd like to hear just a little bit uh, from, from both of you. I'm going to start with you, Dr. Markham. You know, we certainly are living through a, um, a historic uh, period now, and I'd be curious just to get your sort of reflections at the moment on what it's like to be a doctor, uh, an oncologist working directly with cancer patients um, uh, during this time. How has it um, impacted your work? You've certainly had to, I'm sure, pivot. It, uh, with a lot of your patients engage in that uh, in that shared decision making and that important patient uh, physician communication. But I'd love for just to, Dr. Markham a moment to share about what this has been like for you, and also to you, um, Dr. Day. Had I'll ask the same question. Oh boy, it is a really interesting time to be living and working through. Um, I, I think you know oncologists are always very well aware of how how uh, immune-compromised their patients are and um, the, the special um, precautions that we need to, guide, you know, counsel them on and, and um, pay attention to ourselves. And this really has just uh, highlighted the importance of that. I, I think it's been um, uh, a very interesting experience counseling different patients through their unique experience. And, and it's more than just what cancer they have and what treatment they're on, but it's, you know, who do they live with? Do they live alone? Do they, uh, are they the primary caregiver for their, you know, 89-year-old parent with dementia who they are the full-time caretaker for? So every issue that is really important in the cancer experience is this magnified right now. Um, So that's, that's been a challenge, but um, it's, it's, been a good thing to um, to figure out how to deal with. I um, and also uh, like many doctors, I've learned to embrace uh, technology. And um, telemedicine is a very new thing for me, but um, I'm learning how to make it work, and my patients are learning how to make it work, and so we are learning together. Um, I uh, lead a division of uh, about a hundred people, including oncologists and fellows and uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants and staff members. And another thing that has been um, weighing heavily on my mind is how not just to keep my patients protected, but how to keep my colleagues protected and uh, yes. how to support each other. It's a really interesting time. And I, I, I am grateful, though, to be living in this community of, of healthcare professionals who really do uh, support one another. And uh, we all have the patient's interest at heart and each other's interest at heart. And I think it's magnified now. Yeah, yeah. Good comments. Um, I'm going to finish up with you, Dr. Day. We have a minute or two left. What are your thoughts, reflections here? No, I mean, I, I think everything that Dr. Markham said, I would certainly continue to emphasize. You know, we never stop worrying about the safety of our patients, our staff, and, and actually, of course, our families and friends. And 
we have become more creative. I, I've really been inspired about the way our teams have worked to come up with ways to really minimize the contact that we have between the numbers of providers and our patients in a way that I think are still providing, you know, excellent care and, and fulfilling all our regulatory requirements. So, so I think the creativity that's come up there is really uh, striking. So, you know, yeah. I, I think one thing I did want to say is, you know, this is really a, a frightening time, I understand, for cancer patients. You know, it, this is a cancer is a terrifying disease, and probably, perhaps even more terrifying during this pandemic. And, and, and I think it's important that your listeners know, even though you know we're not in our laboratories, we're physically distanced, we still spend a lot of time thinking about what we can do to improve the outlook for cancer patients. But we are still thinking about future clinical trials. You know, how to treat patients, how to improve patients' quality of life, and how long they live. So, you know, even though a lot of our time is focused on this horrible pandemic, I think it's important that your listeners really understand that we are still doing everything we can to improve uh, the outcome for, for cancer patients. Well, that's very reassuring to hear, um, Dr. Dehead, and I know our listeners will be happy to hear that uh, from you and, and reflections from both of you. I want to thank both of you for joining the show today. This has been a really a very helpful conversation for our listeners, and I also want to thank you for all that you're doing to care for cancer patients, um, to take care of each other uh, as colleagues, those around you, to keep everyone safe, and um, we are in this together, and uh, I know we're all hopeful that we'll um, you know, be together on the other side of this. Uh, I just also want to remind our listeners that um, we have a host of free services for you at the Cancer Support Community. If you're facing any kind of cancer diagnosis at any stage of illness, we also have support services for the loved ones and caregivers of people with cancer. You can call us on our helpline, which is now open seven days a week due to the coronavirus epidemic. We're getting a lot of calls on the helpline. If you're feeling um, isolated, if you're feeling lonely, you want to connect with one of our counselors, you want information, give us a call, um, grab a pen. That number is 888-793-9355. Again, it's 888-793-9355. We also have, uh, we've created a whole coronavirus um, uh, section of our website. So if you go to cancersupportcommunity.org slash coronavirus, you'll find up-to-date information. We're updating that daily uh, for cancer patients. We also have a wonderful online community called My Lifeline where you can set up your own uh, online platform where you can invite your friends and family in and you can share what's going on with you through through video, through photos, through a helping calendar. If you visit us um, at uh, My Lifeline, we also have discussion boards. We have thousands of folks in our discussion boards and a lot of um, chatter, as you can imagine, on those boards right now about um, about COVID-19. So we are here to support you through this um, uh, and, and beyond. So give us a call at 888-793-9355. I'm Kim Thibaldo from the Cancer Support Community. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. <music>